Hey there, everyone. It's been a while, hasn't it? Well, here we are in the new year of 2019. I do hope everyone had an amazing holiday and spent loads of time being spoilt and having fun with the family. I certainly did, though, of course. Though I did have a bit of bad news towards the end of 2018. I found out that my contract at work was suddenly not going to be extended an hour before we broke up before the holidays. So my mood was dour, to say the least, as that timing is pretty damn awful. So yeah, I'm out of a job at the moment, and it's not particularly fun. Luckily, it means I'm busy instead working my ass off in the name of horror, continuing my quest of watching a duo of potentially obscene films to see if I can seek out nastier material than the ones that good old Blighty banned back in the 80s. Yeah, I'm a horror fan, and a major one at that, but one of my favourite things to seek out is a horror that has offended someone. I'm on top of that like a tramp on chips, as the saying goes. So whenever I hear of the latest Lars von Trier film causing mass walkouts, or an indie production causing outrage at the Cannes Film Festival, it only guarantees that I'll seek it out and see for myself what is so offensive. Imagine my delight when I found out about the video Nasties, a whole list of over 150 titles that the UK government banned during the 80s for fear of our populace becoming, well, rabid flesh-eating maniacs. As is the case with every instance of censorship, banning something only makes people seek it out with more tenacity, as poor Briar Streisand found out the hard way. As is only natural, I now collect the video nasties, and for the most part I'm unimpressed by the government's outcry. So I'm now trawling through the 60s to the 80s, which is the time period when all of the nasties were released, to find similar material that for some reason wasn't banned, when at least it's very much on par with what was. Occasionally I do get surprised when I find that there were others seized quietly under the table, so it only increases my desire to continue. Then of course there's you guys, my listeners, who must at least like this stuff enough to carry on listening to me. Anyway, enough waffle about me, let's get on to today's theme. We've covered quite a few genres already, but one which we haven't really touched upon yet is the women in prison genre. Before we get into two of those examples, let's talk about what women in prison films actually are. You won't be surprised to find out that women in prison films actually concern female characters and their dynamics inside a prison. That's pretty much a given, but the genre is far from gritty dramas or genuine examinations of what incarceration does to women. Instead, women in prison films are more of a sexploitation type affair, with more pornographic intentions than anything else. The flimsy plots almost always include sexual and physical abuse of female prisoners by other inmates, guards, or the prison warden, male or female, and there's usually an abundance of lesbian encounters too, especially between inmates. The characters too are hypersexualized in their depiction, wearing more lascivious and provocative clothing rather than practical uniform or prison garb than realistic prisons would enforce, and the treatment of prisoners is almost always sexual in nature, such as forcing them to strip, to shower in groups, conduct body searches, whip them, restrain them, verbally abuse them, beat them, or just flat out torture them. Despite a lot of these acts being quite violent in nature, it becomes a, quite a catalogue of voyeuristic fetishes for the viewer because of the way that the film is set up. Even fights between the inmates are enjoyed as the spectacle of cat fights or mud wrestling, so every aspect of the film is wrung clean to get every last drop of exploitative titillation for primarily a heterosexual male audience. Rape is commonly featured in the films too as a natural microcosm of the film's mixture of sex and violence, which does get the genre into a lot of legal troubles, especially with the BBFC. 
One of the earliest examples was Jess Franco's 99 Women, which established a lot of the genre's staple elements, though arguably the genre could be traced back to the melodramatic films of the 30s, in which female prisoners found redemption through their life behind bars. Jess Franco's film turned it into something a little more exploitative, but the market clearly desired it at the time, as 99 Women became very successful. More similar films came to follow, and the 70s and 80s became flooded with all sorts of rip-offs and examples of this particular genre. The Italians made quite a few, and the genre also sort of bled into the Nazi exploitation genre too, which has very similar themes and structure, though it's set in Nazi-occupied territory, of course. Asia too would see a lot of their material during World War II in detention camps, and then there were the Filipino-based films, which were almost exclusively set in jungle camps of Banana Republic nations. Three women in prison pictures made it onto the Video Nasties lists, including Human Experiments, Women Behind Bars, and Hell Prison, which is also known as Escape from Hell. Now that we know a little bit about the genre, let's discuss the two films that we're covering today. It's a two-for-the-price-of-one theme today, which basically makes reference to the fact that the two films that we're covering were shot back-to-back with another release that makes liberal use of the same location, the same actors, the same themes, and the same resources. This is to the extent that the films are so similar, you'd probably get them confused. And to make it even more relevant, the sister films of the two films that we're covering today were actually video nasties. We have 1976's Barbed Wire Dolls from Jess Franco, which was filmed at the same time as video nasty Women Behind Bars, while the other is 1980's Hotel Paradise from Eduardo Malagia, filmed back-to-back with video nasty Hell Prison. So let's infiltrate the first example from the very prolific Jess Franco, Barbed Wire Dolls. In a women's prison, a red-headed prisoner called Rosa is tortured by being kept like a dog on a chain around her neck, refused food, and threatened with a whip by a guard called Nesta if she moves or continues to be noisy. Suddenly, a new prisoner, Maria, is admitted to the prison, sparking rumours about who she is. The female wardress describes that she will be subjected to unconventional methods to correct her crime, and sure enough, she's later tied to a wire bed and periodically shocked. Some of the other prisoners, including the reserved Bertha, the now crazed Rosa, and the nymphomaniac Ingrid, all begin to ponder about how unlucky or lucky the new girl is to be tortured in this way. 
One of the prison governors, called Milton, has one of the female prisoners brought to him to be used by Nestor as a sexual plaything, while Milton is turned on by watching the encounter. The next day, Milton and a male warden meet with the wardress and her prison doctor, Carlos, to discuss an urgent matter, one of the prisoners sending a letter describing their tortures outside the island. It was intercepted, however, allowing the wardress to address her prisoners and ask them to reveal who the guilty one is. When no one steps forward, the wardress halves their rations and promises harsher punishments for smaller infractions. Later, Carlos mentions his nervousness about the letter, paranoid that a change in government or attention from liberals and leftists will lead to the discovery of their abuse of the prisoners. But the wardress is confident that no such thing will happen, due to the level of degeneracy in their prisoners. The wardress then blackmails Carlos with knowledge that he murdered the prison's previous doctor in order to obtain some notion of who he believes is responsible. He believes it to be Bertha, causing the wardress to snatch her from her cell and replace her with Maria. After some tortures, Bertha is brought to the wardress who then begins to seduce her, getting her to finally confess to writing the note. Instead of punishing her, however, she makes love to her until she orgasms, then promptly disposes of her by turning her over to Nesta for abuse. Milton visits again, asking about Bertha, whom he's now discovered to have written the note, to request her presence at his residence. Nesta brings her to Milton, and then to her bedroom, where he has her masturbate in front of him for his pleasure. The same night, Maria has a flashback, whilst she's sleeping, of her father, who drunkenly tries to rape her before being apparently killed when she pushes him away, his head accidentally striking a mantelpiece. As she looks upon this, Ingrid is carted off by the wardress when she realises that she's fondling herself with a lit cigarette. The next day at lunch, the other prisoners wonder what Maria had done to deserve her life sentence, while Maria herself discovers a rat in her meal, threatened by the guards to eat it before being sent off to Nesta to be tortured with electricity again. As she begs for mercy, Nesta instead penetrates her with a bamboo whip, causing her to fall unconscious from the trauma. Later that day, Carlos expresses his concern for the continual tortures, afraid that it's going to ruin his fragile state of mind. The wardress, however, is confident that she will survive her ordeal, and reveals that she used to be the lover of Maria's father, walking in after the attempted rape to find Maria's dad unconscious on the floor. Feeling annoyed that Maria was the real object of his affections, the wardress was the real culprit of his murder, and she now asks Carlos to dispose of Maria so that she can rest easy. Instead, Carlos offers to help Maria after having sex with her, as does Bertha, whom she bonds with after confiding in her about her past. Hatching a plan to use the doctor to escape, Bertha and Maria use the delirious Rosa to gain access to the infirmary. When Carlos is then distracted by Rosa's ramblings, Maria stabs him to death with scissors and the trio flee through the courtyard and use a rope to descend to the coastline. Walking further away from the prison, the girls eventually find a small clearing to rest in. Back at the prison, Ingrid is being tortured by Nesta for details of the girls' escape, but dies before being able to say anything of note. Finally, the girls reach the sea, but not before Nesta and a female guard find them. Rosa suddenly finds strength and attacks the female guard, while Nestor is shot by a male guard called Jose, who catches Nestor sexually assaulting Bertha. As she's being recaptured, Maria and Rosa enter the Governor Milton's house, convinced that they'll be saved, only to be shot and killed by the wardress who is standing around the corner. As the girls slump to the floor dead, Milton plays a death dirge on his piano. 
I'm sorry I arrived unannounced, but I have some urgent business to discuss with you. Something very disturbing has happened. It must be very urgent to bring you here. Well, it could be extremely urgent and may have serious consequences. Read this. Your Excellency, in the tower of this prison there is a place where inmates are tortured. Don't believe what the directress says. She's responsible for all. I wonder who wrote that. There's no doubt about it. One of the prisoners. How is it possible for a prisoner to send it out? I regret this incident, but I promise, Mr. Governor, this will never happen anymore. It could have been very embarrassing for you and for me. We must pay attention. Next time a higher-up could receive a note. I think I might find out who wrote this letter. I'll check through all my records and compare the handwriting. Barbed Wire Dolls is unfortunately not going to be winning any prestigious awards anytime soon. It was Franco's third women in prison flick, after 99 Women and Devil's Island Lovers, but it's almost universally bad in terms of plot and narrative. It's also not particularly realistically realised. The characters are as stock as you can order in bulk, and the frequent juvenile attention to ladies' bits and writhing around in pain or pleasure limits the film's potential to be particularly memorable. Yet, in the way that only Jess Franco can achieve, the film somehow avoids the cardinal sin of being boring, and despite not being original or memorable, at least achieves some level of humour and entertainment, however base the intention may be. And considering the whole torrent of boring films out there, panic, I'm looking at you, this does have to be commended. The plot is very simple. We're shown an island-style prison that seems to be a combination of normal-looking rooms within an old ruin, surrounded by dense forests and grasslands, with a house or two dotted around. It's not particularly realistic, but this is Jess Franco after all. The exterior shots of the prison were filmed at an authentic ruin near Antibes in the south of France, while the interiors were filmed in Zurich, Switzerland, near the producer Irvin Dietrich's house. His other film that he was shooting at the time, Women Behind Bars, was also quite unrealistic in that the prison seemed to be a recreational leisure centre rather than a maximum security prison. Still, letting it slide for now, the locations are functionary at best, but the outside shots are at least pretty, and the prison looks quite imposing from the outside. Our narrative involves Maria, who has accidentally killed her father because he tried to rape her and found herself imprisoned as a result. It turns out that she's innocent, framed by the very wardress who now watches over her incarceration. Maria formulates a plan with fellow prisoners Bertha and Rosa, and all three are killed in the process. That's the story, basically, if you strip back all of the fluff. Which, of course, is the main focus of the film, with the most threadbare of plots relegated to background noise. Despite Maria seemingly being the heroine of the story, she's featured surprisingly little in the majority of the short runtime, with Bertha and the wardress taking up noticeably much more screen time. None of the various subplots, like the Dr Carlos murdering his predecessor, or the fact that Governor Milton has a bit of a thing for voyeurism, ever pans out to anything substantial, and even the main plot thread terminates in the deaths or the recapture of all of the girls, meaning that the wardress has succeeded and then the film ends, so it's not particularly satisfying either way. 
The characters in the film, too, are little more than the standard cardboard cutout characters that you'd expect from a women in prison flick. Main girl Maria is the innocent, doe-eyed victim of the prison system, framed by the wardress and thoroughly undeserved of her punishments. Bertha is the loyal friend, the experienced prisoner who shows the new gal the ropes, as well as her affections. Rosa is the stereotypical madwoman, who's gone slightly nuts due to the brutal regime inside the place, so much so that she now knows nothing else and imagines it as a wonderful place, full of sunshine, rainbows and unicorns. Ingrid is the prison nymphomaniac, utterly obsessed with sex to the point that she makes advances on everyone and imagines dreamlike orgiastic scenarios where she is Queen Isabella and she's humping everyone from Greek gods to Christopher Columbus. Her dialogue is rendered so moot by her gyrating pelvis and frequent schlocking that it's rather amusing. The wardress fills in the butch-domineering lesbian archetype, though her fascistic features are heavily emphasised, such as wearing a monocle and reading Albert Speer's Third White Reich memoirs in her spare time. She's simultaneously attracted to the women and repulsed by them, using them for sexual gratification and then throwing them away when they've served their purpose. Carlos, the Doctor, is the stereotyped conflicted villain who doesn't agree with the brutality in the camp, but indulges in the sexual abuse of his charges by abusing his position as a Doctor, so he's clearly not that bothered. The Governor Milton is a character made solely out of the usual trope of having an impotent or otherwise sexually deficient antagonist. In this iteration, he's got a penchant for voyeuristically watching people get off without actually being involved himself. In fact, Eve seems repulsed by actually taking part in the act himself, much preferring to be a witness to fondlings and gropings. Then we have Nestor, the sexual brute who's the wardress's right-hand punisher. When a prisoner makes an infraction of the rules, however, slight, Nestor is employed on hand to dish out the tortures with huge aplomb. Of course, he also has a more sadistic side to him, such as attempting rape when he's not actually ordered to, or just being incredibly verbal with his tortures. Other characters are so perfunctory that it seems amusing. For example, there's only Jose and an unnamed female guard that seem to actually be working there, so the ratio of guards to prisoners is ridiculously mismatched. So without any standard characters, and no plot to speak of, audiences are left with the filler, the aforementioned fluff, or to a certain demographic of audience, the money shots. I'm talking, of course, about the staples of the women in prison genre, so you wouldn't be surprised to hear that the film is rife with full-on female nudity of varying degrees. Boobs, bums and beavers are the codes of the day, with enough gratuitous shots of female genitalia, breasts and backsides to warm the cockles of any warm-blooded heterosexual man. On me, of course, it was at least amusing to watch the blatant thrusting of anything remotely sexy in front of the camera to keep you watching. A lot of this material is incidental, such as the natural skimpiness of the prisoner's clothing just being revealing enough to expose flesh. You become blind to this after a while, though, simply because the costume designer has made it his mission to make the outfits as impractical as possible. The prisoner's garb consists of a single lengthy navy blue shirt that barely covers their modesty. In Ingrid's case, the budget extends to suspenders that don't actually suspend, except for a paltry addition of some string. The wardress too has a rather bizarre wardrobe. Her usual appearance is a tight shirt which confidently displays her cleavage gap but substitutes pants for the smallest pair of short shorts that I've ever seen. It literally looked like she was wearing nothing on her lower half as the shorts were about as effective as a pair of knickers. 
completing the look were almost knee-length jackboots, fully solidifying her as an advocate of the German Nazi regime, especially with that ridiculous monocle. Her nightwear's no better, being completely transparent enough to show what she's had for breakfast, which only begs the question of why she's even wearing it at all. But of course, that's answered by the countless scenes of her stripping it off and getting raunchy with the female charges. She's not the only one, of course. The prisoners frequently engaged in masturbating and gyrating in their threadbare cells, presumably because there's just nothing else to bloody do. In one particularly eye-watering moment, Ingrid uses her lit cigarette to frig herself, though she seems to be using the hot filter. She certainly doesn't stub it out on herself, which is what you'd think, but it still makes you grit your teeth imagining something that hot being so close to your pleasure zones. And speaking of pleasure zones, there's all sorts of naughtiness being perpetrated by the wardress, especially in a scene where she tries to entice Bertha to reveal who wrote the letter. I don't know whether the right term would be conilingus or analingus, but she certainly pokes around that area, culminating in a rather saucy session where the wardress asks Bertha to smack her around while humping her. Clearly, she's into the rough kink. But so too is Nestor, who exhibits his skills at applying the whip to naked ladies' bodies just a little bit too often in this film. When he's not whipping, he's plain violating them with the butt of it, or smacking them in the footh with a cane. There's kinky stuff abound in this film. But then there's also the torture stuff, like Maria and Bertha being electrically tortured by being strapped to a wire bed, or Rosa being forcefully mentally tortured by being forced to submit like a dog to the despotic Nestor. Jess Franco's usual zooms and voyeuristic flourishes makes the viewer almost as complicit in the tortures as the pervy bystanders, Carlos, Milton and the wardress. Despite this dichotomy of camp, seedy silliness mixed with prolonged perviness and torture, there are a few examples of just pure stupidity and ridiculousness. That's not to say that these moments aren't also side-splittingly hilarious, but they do lack the camp sexiness that most of the dominant scenes have. For example, the flashback sequence that establishes My Maria is there is clearly meant to have been in slow motion. I think Franco felt that it would be too expensive to shoot in actual slow motion, so instead he opts to go ahead without the technique. But it's painfully obvious that it's been shot in real time, with Jess Franco and Lena Romay just pretending to be moving in slow motion. It's frighteningly humorous, though, as they move extra slow sometimes, faster others, while a lampshade in the background moves completely normally when it tips over. When Maria arrives, she signs her consent form for shock therapy without any protest at all. I mean, really? And why would you ask for permission for that sort of thing anyway? The wardress doesn't strike me as the type to even consider consent. And while the scene of the mentally ill Rosa being psychologically degraded by being forced out like a dog is quite disturbing, it does elicit a chuckle that the dog bowl is full of freshly cooked fusilli pasta. I mean, at least it's not the slop and bread that you'd expect. In conclusion, the film is not really all that good in terms of quality storytelling or cinematic excellence, but it's rather amusing and engaging for those wanting a giggle, or rather sultry and arousing for the actual intended audience of horny men. Either way, the film serves a purpose, and if this is your thing, by all means, you should enjoy it. It's certainly not the worst film ever, but certainly don't expect high art. If you're seeking out a movie called Barbed Wire Dolls, though, I'm pretty sure that that's not your concern. Maria was played by Jess Franco's most frequently utilised muse, Lena Romay, with whom he also had a romantic relationship for decades until her death in 2012. 
We've seen her before in Diamonds of Kilimanjaro, but she's been in several video nasties too, like Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, Women Behind Bars, and Cannibal. Paul Muller played the role of Carlos. We'd only encountered Muller a few weeks ago on The House of Witchcraft. The wardress was played by Swiss actress Monica Swin, who'd been in similar provocative exploitation films before, like Bare-Breasted Countess, The Demoniacs, uh, Hitler's Last Train, and 1977's Love Camp. Roger Darton, who played Governor Milton, was a Belgian actor who frequently popped up in Eurocine productions. Some of his appearances were in the video nasty Women Behind Bars, uh, Hitler's Last Train, and Captive Women 4. Actor Ronald Weiss, who played the male warden, starred in the same exact films as Darton. He had a much more prominent role in the other film, though, shot with this one, Women Behind Bars. Bertha was played by Martine Stadil, who frequently played alongside Lena Romay in stuff like Women Behind Bars, The Marquis de Sade, and Swedish Nympho Slaves. Nestor was played by the rather muscular, imposing figure of Eric Falk, who was a German actor who'd been in the video nasty The Mad Foxes. He also cropped up in Ilsa the Wicked Warden and Caged Women in 1980. Finally, there was Peggy Markoff, who played Ingrid. She too appeared alongside Lena Romay in almost everything she did. The Marquis de Sade, Ilsa the Wicked Warden and Swedish Nympho Slaves. Also of note was Jess Franco himself, who played Maria's rapacious father. Director Jess Franco is rather infamous in Video Nastyland, as he'd done a fair few of them like Bloody Moon, Devil Hunter, Women Behind Bars, Cannibal, Oasis of the Zombies, and The Demons. I'd say then that really he was the director who contributed the most titles to the official lists, and we've been lucky enough to already cover him on Diamonds of Kilimanjaro. Franco also wrote the film along with Christine Lembach, who worked on stuff like She Devils of the SS and Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun. The producer was a Swiss guy, Erwin C. Dietrich, who helped fund a lot of Jess Franco's work and other Spanish exploitation, like Ilsa the Wicked Warden, Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun, Love Camp, 1980s Caged Women, Mad Foxes, and even the later German film, Killer Condom. Composer Walter Baumgartner worked on pretty much the same films, while the other musician, Daniel White, worked on a lot of the Eurocine productions like Zombie Lake, Oasis of the Zombies and Diamonds of Kilimanjaro. Some of the music is lifted from Jess Franco's western, El Lanero, which is from 1963, which accounts for the crediting of Daniel White, who also worked on that film. Franco did the cinematography on the picture, whilst the editing was done by Peter Baumgartner, who also worked on the video nasty Mad Foxes and 1980s Caged Women. He was assisted in this by Marie-Louise Bouchk, who'd worked on titles like Ranch of the Nymphomaniac Girls, What Really Happened to Miss Jonas, and Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun. Lastly, there was Paul Grau, who worked as a location manager. Grau was the writer and director of the video nasty Mad Foxes, which is an absolute hoot if you haven't seen that film already. As mentioned before, Barbed Wire Dolls was filmed at the same time as the video nasty Women Behind Bars, sharing most of the same cast, locations and resources. Reportedly, this was because Jess Franco used some of the money for Barbed Wire Dolls to effectively make two movies for the price of one, giving Erwin Dietrich his film, Barbed Wire Dolls, whilst giving the other film, Women Behind Bars, to Eurocine. Producer Dietrich originally was concerned about the quality of his film, believing that it would be unsuccessful as a product, 
and actually suspected that Franco had been cheeky and made another film with his investment, but Franco had denied it at the time. It seems that the truth did come out many years afterwards anyway, but Dietrich has since softened to the news, explaining that at least Franco gave him the better film. Women Behind Bars is definitely the milder and the less outrageous of the two, but I guess it was all academic when it became one of the DPP's targets in the UK. Upon release, Barbed Wire Dolls became rather popular in Germany and the US when it was released in the 70s, making the producer quite a happy chap and fostering a harmonious partnership with Franco for many years to come. Barbed Wire Dolls did have a pre-cert VHS release in the UK in 1980 as Caged Women from Vipco. Being so closely intertwined with Women Behind Bars, and the fact that Vipco were the releasing company, having released Zombie Flesh Eaters and Driller Killer, I'm quite surprised that this one was not seized or listed as one of the nasties. It certainly got the goods, as it's much more sleazy, explicit and violent than Women Behind Bars, but an explanation can be offered by taking a look at the tape itself. While the film was rejected at the cinemas in 1976, the version that Vipka were offering was heavily pre-cut, so much so that this version was a mere 63 minutes long, meaning that the film was subjected to roughly 20 minutes of cuts. With so much missing from the film, I doubt that there was any contentious material left, which is probably why it attracted so little attention. It subsequently disappeared until 2004, when a full version was resubmitted to the BBFC for certification. It was passed after 41 seconds of cuts to an unsimulated act of penetration with a finger, which could only be allowed in an R18-related film, which would basically restrict its sale to sex shops only. I doubt the fingering being removed, though, would make that much of a difference, as there's more than enough sexual activity in this film anyway. So, that was Barbed Wire Dolls. Let's schmoozy on over to our other film of the week, Hotel Paradise. Yeah. 
At a Central American prison camp, countless women are forced to slave away and toil under the baking sun, only given paltry snake soup for their troubles. One of the prisoners, Muriel, hopes for better fortunes in the future, planning to do her horoscope later that evening. The warden, Jordan, is then visited by his top guards, Caesar and Margot, with their concerns that their emerald digging is proving far less lucrative than they thought. Jordan insists that more prisoners should be brought in soon, while Margot tries to calm him down by having sex with him. Nearby, a group of revolutionaries led by Loreno and his right-hand man Moreno plan to take over Jordan's camp in order to secure the emerald stash and gain an advantage in their mission. The men responsible for ferrying new prisoners are led by a man called Orinoco, who's planning to help the revolutionaries. On his latest trip, he brings another group of female volunteer prisoners, which includes Lorna and Maria. Muriel's little ritual apparently foresees blood in their future, while Moreno and his small group end up being ambushed by enemy combatants, but they manage to overcome their opponents with a few casualties. During their latest emerald hunt, Muriel speaks out against Caesar's brutality after he dismisses one of the dead prisoners, and then he promptly whips her, just as Orinoco, his men, and the female prisoners settle down to camp for the night on their way to the prison. Maria, however, seduces one of Jordan's generals, and leads him away having sex with him, until Loreno turns up and stabs the general in the back. Maria and Loreno reunite with Orinoco, and devise a plan to infiltrate the camp. Another girl is punished at the camp by hanging when she finds an emerald but hides it between her legs, while Maria and Lorna fight on the way over Maria's licentious habits. The group then arrive at the camp with Loreno and his men pretending to be soldiers who saved Orinoco and his men. In Jordan's office, Loreno spots the stash of emeralds, which Jordan asks him to transport to his employer. Maria, Lorna and the other girls are given a shower on their arrival, with Lorna being asked by Margot to follow her to the infirmary, as she will be taking over nurse duties, despite the infirmary being in a state of disrepair. As Muriel masturbates in her cell, Maria is suddenly assigned to the same room, and the two begin to bond by swiftly having sex. Some of the fellow prisoners begin to plan a spontaneous escape by making a run for Orinoco's boat, while Lorna, Orinoco and Loreno have dinner with Jordan and Margot. Maria tells Muriel about Loreno's plan, giving Muriel hope of rescue, whilst a prisoner called Rosita, under pressure from being caught stealing, reveals to Jordan that a small group of the girls are trying to steal Orinoco's boat. Their plan is executed later that night, but as they run towards the river, they're caught by one of Jordan's guards, and all are shot dead bar one. Meanwhile in their office, Margot and Jordan begin fondling two of the prisoners until one of them rejects Margot, causing her to be whipped and thrown out. Jordan then tries to rape one of the other prisoners before Caesar enters and helps him to restrain her, penetrating her with a truncheon. The next day, the survivor of the escape attempts is publicly displayed in the exercise yard on a pillory-like contraption, with Muriel swearing revenge on Rosita for ratting them out. Straight away after, the two girls who rejected the sexual advances of the night before are bound together and whipped brutally in front of all of the prisoners by Caesar. Maria cannot stand by anymore and attacks Caesar, only for one of Loreno's men to get involved and get thrown into solitary as a result. Due to the brutality, one of Jordan's guards asks for a transfer, but is simply shot dead by Caesar instead. Deciding that enough is enough, Loreno and Orinoco move to start the camp revolt later that night, killing several guards, securing their weapons and donning their disguises. 
Jordan, meanwhile, is having sex with another of the prisoners, just when the whole camp is interrupted by cries of fire, which have all been set by Loreno. The entire camp descends into chaos, with Maria and Muriel taking advantage of the situation to kill Rosita. Loreno and his men begin to open fire on the guards, whilst Maria secures some dynamite and blows up some of the guards' huts. Caesar and Jordan join the fight, but Jordan is killed with a pitchfork when many women advance on him and he runs out of ammunition. Muriel and Maria use some of the dynamite to blow open Jordan's safe, full of emeralds, only to have them stolen by Caesar. Orinoco then attacks him and they fight over the jewels, while Margot turns up and fatally shoots Maria. Just before she dies, however, Maria manages to kill Margot and the pair fall down together. The revolt is successful and Lorena and his men, as well as the prisoners, led by Muriel and Lorna, leave the camp finally, with Orinoco going to prepare his boat upon receiving a generous bag of emeralds for his troubles. Uh, day to day? Yeah, same lousy luck we've been having lately. So I see. If it continues this way, we'll have to close up shop. So you better get busy and get at those emeralds. Or we'll wind up losing our contract with the company. Sir, if you can get the government to send us some more prisoners, that'll help. You'll never make it with the ones you've got. And then there's that promise to shorten the sentence for those who volunteer. I wonder which is worse, the prisoner or this hellhole? What do you think? It's a lot worse here, Cesar. Shut up! This area's rich with stones. Get at them, Cesar. Now get back to the camp. I want to speak to Margot. Remember, we could use some more prisoners. It's my job. Right, sir. It's a fact, Jordan. He needs help. Those prisoners are dead tired. Some are even sick. Listen, Jordan, they won't last. I expect some new prisoners in a week. Perhaps what we needed from the beginning was more help, that's true. There's no doubt about it. Now the authorities will have their stones. Huh. I'll be ruined if we don't succeed. Don't think about it anymore. Forget your troubles for a while. You haven't been yourself these last few days. Because you haven't been near me, dear. Having seen Hell Prison, or Escape from Hell as it's more commonly known, it's hard to distinguish the film from Hotel Paradise as the pair together are even more similar than Women Behind Bars and Barbed Wire Dolls are. Directed again by Eduardo Malagia, Hotel Paradise follows the same formula as the jungle camp women in prison flicks, relegating the action to an unknown country's tropical jungle with stockades, humidity, mud, dangerous creatures and colonial-style tyranny in the form of the warden and his guards. There's certainly another layer of discomfort added to these films when the climate looks so punishingly harsh. With Hotel Paradise, we have a bit more story packed in between the sexy women in prison staples, but that's not to say it's any less exploitative. What we have here is a tale of women enslaved in the middle of the jungle to be forced into manual labour to source emeralds in order to complete some sort of contract for the prison warden. Meanwhile, a group of revolutionaries wishing to overthrow a totalitarian government focus on the prison camp for that very stash of emeralds to go towards the cause, as well as liberating the abused female prisoners at the same time. 
It's not the best of storylines, and it's hardly original either, but at least unlike Jess Franco's film, it is having a snab at weaving a storyline around its more sleazy objective. One thing that the film succeeds at is establishing a suitably grim and horrid atmosphere. The prison camp is pretty damn hellish. There's an abundance of mud, damp and perpetual moisture, with tropical foliage, dense jungle and a whole clump of insects and bugs. It looks unbearably hot, sweaty and greasy, as other countries in one of the harshest areas of the equator. The prisoners are continually forced to labour away, with little rest of refreshment. Even the showers look filthy and warm rather than cool and refreshing. The food is meagre and smelly, likened by one prisoner to liquid manure and garlic, and the amenities are woefully low, with even the infirmary being dust-ridden, cobweb-covered and ill-equipped to actually heal anybody. The colour palette of the film, too, is abundant with grungy browns, khaki and green, with very little else. Even the film's stock seems to absorb the griminess of the situation and the locations, being rather fuzzy, grungy and scuzzy, almost on purpose. It's rather stark how different the tone is with this film compared to the relative cleanness of the picture in Franco's film. Going straight onto the characters, however, there's still no such luck in terms of getting well-written characters enough to actually give a damn. Despite the film actually having no plot, it's still not a great one despite giving a bit more effort than the previous film. Main girl Muriel is the first on the one they're introduced to, and a little a bit like Maria from the previous film, she's not as focused on as you'd expect her to be. She's certainly got some hope left in her that their plight will all be over at some point, and she relies on channeling spirits and foreseeing the future to aid their escape. Despite the character's lack of action early on in the film, and the abundance of talk, Muriel is certainly able to kick ass when she needs to, by grabbing a gun and helping the revolutionaries take over the camp, stealing the emeralds in the process. She survives the film, mostly due to luck I'd say, but it was fun to see her take the initiative and get guns blazing. The rather sultry Maria, who uses her sexuality to charm the general, is a lot more confident and daring in her actions to escape the camp. Apart from her previous charms she uses on the general and Muriel to gain her trust, Maria is also the only prisoner with the guts to intervene on some of the tortures, getting beaten in the process. While it wasn't the most intelligent course of action, it's at very least a laudable act for trying to stop her fellow prisoners suffering. She's also headstrong enough to start bombarding the prison guards with dynamite in the film's finale, and she's the one who successfully steals the emeralds. She does unfortunately die during the end, but despite her positive attributes, the film just doesn't develop her enough to really care all that much. Lorna too is rather admirable in her role as a nurse, but she rarely gets to show her stuff, whilst Loreno, Orinoco, and the rest of the male goodies are little more than sounding boards for the film's side plot about overthrowing a dictatorship. Jordan, the warden, is rather concerned at the beginning about his emerald planning operation, but then seems to forget about it nigh instantly after the opening sex scene with Margot, and then focuses the rest of the film on securing booty for the night, and that's about it. Caesar is like the nester of this film, perpetrating a lot of the brutal jobs like whipping and stringing up prisoners on display for punishment. Margot, interestingly, is mentioned as being a prisoner once herself, who advanced to the level of a guard through sleeping with the warden. It's quite similar to the idea of the Capos in the Nazi regime, and like those very people, Margot is tough, brutal, and of course, abusive herself. She's a butch bisexual who equally wants to play with women as she does with men. 
There's no real reason for this, other than to have some fairly aggressive molestation scenes later, but as this is a women in prison film, so far, so typical. Without many decent characters to root for, the majority of the film is focused on the scenes of brutality, as there are less frequent sex scenes in this film, but that's not to say that they're absent. Far from it, in fact. But the violent scenes in this film include some impromptu whippings of the unruly prisoners, their tired bodies being hung on public displays, some non-consensual gropings, and even an instance of one woman being literally worked to death. It's not as explicit as the previous film, but it still somehow manages to feel dirty and nasty, mostly due to the environment that the film is set in. The finale, of course, though, is a much better slice of entertainment, as the action really ratchets up quite quickly with stabbings, throats cut, shootings, gunfights and explosions, all crammed into the last 15 minutes of the movie. It's rather entertaining, despite the majority of the film being more paced and low-key. It wouldn't be a women-in-prison film, though, without the requisite nudity and sex. Quite consistently, the female prisoners are presented to us in an overly sexualized fashion, wearing what can only be described as a scungy, greenish-brown rag dress as their prison garb. They've got multiple tears in them, they're so short that they leave the legs exposed, and they just look filthy in both the sexy fashion and the cleanliness fashion. You really feel some sympathy for the girls' plight based upon just how wretched their daily life looks. Though, of course, it also presents an opportunity for viewers to ogle if you're in that sort of thing. Likewise, a scene of the girls showering together also presents the same opportunity, as the showers look anything but cleansing. I mean, in terms of productivity, getting a bunch of voluptuous women dressed in sexy and practical garb to pan for emeralds is hardly a winning business model. Then we get to the actual sex scenes, of which there are more than a few. Margot mounts Jordan for a few bounces, Maria manages to sweet-talk her way into a sergeant's pants, Muriel gives herself some TLC with a pipe before enacting every straight guy's fantasy with Maria, and then Jordan screws some other random female prisoner. They're not particularly erotic, though, due to the setting, and one scene involving Margot and Jordan jointly abusing a pair of prisoners is much more of a rapey assault than anything else, though one that thankfully doesn't get very far, leading us into a scene where the girls are punished for not accepting the violent advances. The aforementioned sex scenes are strong, but an interesting twist to this is that for the international version of this film, hardcore inserts have been crudely patched into these scenes to spice them up. The same thing happened with the sister film Hell Prison, presumably to gain it a bit more longevity and traction on the video market. The issue with them is that the scenes in the film are already dirtily degenerate enough with the sweaty, humid atmosphere and the low-quality film stock. The hardcore bits are even more low quality, and it's the furthest thing from erotic when it seems your participants are covered in grime. Still, we're treated to Margot giving Jordan a brief hand job before putting it inside her and riding it for a few moments, whilst later the sergeant gives Maria a bit of head before she undoes his pants, plays with his cock for five seconds and then inserts it into herself. Muriel's pipe masturbation goes a little bit further to full penetration, and Jordan's sex with the unnamed prisoner is extended to include a brief blowjob, oddly involving her teeth, and then the usual pump action before the pair are interrupted by the revolt swinging into action. These scenes, as mentioned before, are decidedly unerotic in context, and they only add to the huge sleaze and grimy factor of the film. I mean, it certainly feels like one needs a shower after watching it, which is at least a reaction of sorts. The hardcore scenes do make you continue watching just for how nasty and brazen they are. 
I certainly didn't think my copy had these scenes in it, so it was a humorous surprise, at least. With a slightly better approach to the story and a genuinely entertaining final section, Hotel Paradise at least attempts to be something other than plain exploitation. It's not necessarily successful due to the abundance of hardcore and softcore sexual shenanigans and the focus on violent punishments, but it wasn't that boring or unwatchable either. These sorts of films have a single job to do, and they do achieve it despite myself being locked out of that particular target audience. With what's left, there's at least some exploitation fun to be had, with the usual terrible dubbing jobs, amateur acting and exaggerated situations. Give it a watch if you can get a hold of it, but I doubt you'll be crying into your pillow if you miss it either. Main girl Muriel was played by Ajita Wilson, a trans actress who we've encountered on Lucio Fulci's Contraband. She also popped up in the sister film The Video Nasty Hell Prison. Lorena was played by Brazilian actor Anthony Stefan, who was born Antonio Luis. Interestingly, Stefan was actually a nobleman, Baron de Taff, whose father was a Formula One champion before becoming an ambassador. As a teenager, Stefan had left his noble family home to join the partisans in the fight against the Nazis, so his role in this film was pretty apt and he was remarkably fluent in English, French, Portuguese, Spanish and Italian. Some of his other film appearances include Django the Bastard, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, Crimes of the Black Cat, The Killer with a Thousand Eyes, Killer Fish, which we've covered before, and also the other film shot at the same time as this one, Hell Prison. Christina Lay, who played Maria, also appeared in the sister film Hell Prison, whilst Orinoco was played by Italian actor Stelio Candelli, who'd been in Planet of the Vampires, Nude for Satan, and Demons. He was strangely absent from the sister film Hell Prison, but Luciano Rossi, who played the warden Jordan, had made small appearances in Salon Kitty, Red Knights of the Gestapo, Contraband, and etc. We spotted him, actually, though, in City of the Living Dead just a few weeks ago. Gota Gobert, who played the Butch Margot, had been previously in Nude for Satan, Emmanuel in America, SS Girls, Nazi Love Camp 27, and Women's Camp 119. Typecast much? The bald guard who's shot dead when he refuses to partake was Italian actor Serafino Profumo, who was in two video nasties himself, Hell Prison and SS Experiment Camp. Also quite typecast. Lorna was played by Maristella Greco, who made a prominent appearance in the video nasty Gestapo's Last Orgy. While Attilio D'Atesio, who appeared briefly as Moreno, had been in a couple of nasties himself, like Deep Red and SS Experiment Camp. Director Eduardo Malaggia was an Italian chap who worked on stuff like Don't Wait Django, Shoot, and also Tropic of Cancer. Hotel Paradise was the last film that Malaggia would direct, though obviously as they were shot back-to-back, Hell Prison is also arguably his last film. His only credit after this is as a writer on Savage Island, which is the re-edited version of these two films that was mentioned before. The writer of Hotel Paradise was Sergio Chiusi, who also worked on SS Experiment Camp, Hell Prison and Savage Island. Chiusi, however, was mainly a special effects guy, who worked on stuff like Barber's Rabid Dogs and also the Exorcist Italian style. The other writer, Gil Caratero, worked on the same films as Chiusi as a writer, but also worked on Horror Express and Crypt of the Living Dead as an assistant director. 
Anthony LaPena worked on the English dialogue and was well known for both English translations and voice work, working on several nasty titles like Hell Prison, Deep Red, Street Killers, Werewolf Woman, Eaten Alive and Cannibal Ferox. Also included were non-nasties, such as Five Dolls for an August Moon, The Fifth Chord, Your Vices Are Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, What Have They Done to Your Daughters, Strip Nude for Your Killer, Bloodstained Shadow and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist. Producer Arturo Gonzalez had previously worked on For a Few Dollars More and Hell Prison, whilst the composer Marcello Giombini we've encountered before on Terror Express and Panic. Cinematographer Manuel Mateos had worked on Hell Prison, Kill Django, Kill First, and even on Night of the Seagulls, which we covered last time. Prominent editor Eugenio Alabicio worked on this film as well. We've encountered him before on Against Nature, Hands of Steel, Almost Human, and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist. He was assisted in this by Gianfranco Amicucci, who worked as an editor on The Big Racket, House by the Edge of the Lake, Bronx Warriors and its sequel, Amazonia, which we've covered before, and Exterminator of the Year 3000. The special effects in the film were done by Giuseppe Ferranti, whom we've discussed quite a few times on stuff like Rats, Night of Terror, um, Hands of Steel, Cat and Nine Tails, and Bird with the Crystal Plumage. As this is two for the price of one, Hotel Paradise is much more noticeably a sister film to Hell Prison. The two prison camps in the two films are practically identical, with the same drawer of prisoners, the same guards at their posts, and very similar objectives. While the camp in Hotel Paradise are operating an emerald harvesting, the camp in Hell Prison are deforesting an area to make an entry point to a swamp. Pretty much the same actors are in the same roles, with only slight exceptions, like Anthony Stephan, who plays the camp doctor in Hell Prison, rather than being an actual protagonist like he is in Hotel Paradise. The two share bits of footage too, and could also be mistaken for the same film, especially as they have very similar cover art and they were released in the same year. Malagia reportedly wanted to get a bang for his buck and he shot the two pictures side by side to maximise the money that he would make from the pictures. In an amusing footnote to this, in 1985 the two films were edited together to make a new story to again make more cash. Titled Savage Island, footage from both Hell Prison and Hotel Paradise were re-edited in a different order with a new dub track and story, with a wraparound plot at the beginning and end featuring Linda Blair, who told the story in flashback. Her presence was heavily emphasised on the re-release's marketing material, and despite Blair's concerns that she was being used to sell a film that she didn't really have a major part in, the film went ahead and released it anyway. You can still find the re-edited version around, with some amazing poster art featuring Linda Blair in a pink version of the prison garb, wearing high heels and brandishing a big submachine gun. Exploitation, folks. Exploitation at its finest. Hotel Paradise did have a VHS release in pre-cert Great Britain, specifically from KM Video in November of 1981. KM, of course, released the sister film and video nasty Hell Prison, so the company would have at least been on the radar for the police. Released under the title The Sadist, the VHS cover featured an edited version of the original poster artwork from Hell Prison to include actress Ajita Wilson, with a lurid tagline underneath boasting one hour of sexual evil. I'm extremely surprised that it wasn't seized by the police for that strapline alone, as that was clearly trying to push buttons. But dwelling on that very tagline reveals the very reason why probably it wasn't given any attention. 
Unlike Hell Prison, which came through relatively intact, only missing the hardcore scenes, the print released for Hotel Paradise was massively cut down by over half an hour, leaving a scant 58 minutes of the runtime left. With so much material removed, I doubt that any of the softcore scenes or the scenes of torture survived at all. Which is actually kind of scary, because I'm dreading to think how watchable this version of the film would be, considering all the women in prison stuff would be pretty much gone. It'd be like putting out all the Friday the 13th films and removing every frame where there's blood. There'd be no conceivable reason to do so. I think based on the fact that it was so heavily censored already, even if the police did seize it, it would have been returned to the shop the same day. The police may be remarking how much the cover was lying about what you got. The pre-cert release was the only version the UK ever got. After vanishing when the Video Recordings Act came into effect, the film has just not been seen here since. The softcore version is available on Region 1 DVD from the US, while the same version is available on European DVDs too, with a strong uncut version available from Denmark, which includes the hardcore scenes. It's in English too, it's just the menus are in Danish. So, that's the episode for this week, chaps. Thanks to everyone for listening as usual. You're all fantastic. And I hope everyone got the best start to the new year. I'm literally back in your ears straight away, however, as my next episode is also releasing at almost the same time. We're sticking with the theme of women in prison, though next time's examples are reportedly a lot more notorious and outrageous, including Jess Franco's Sadomania and Bruno Mattai's Violence in a Women's Prison. Until then, though, tweet me at the usual place, at Nasty Pasty Pod, or just search Nasty Pasty Podcast on Facebook. I'd love to hear what everyone else's thoughts are. Do give my other episode a listen when it comes out, and thanks again to everyone who stuck with Nasty Pasty right into 2019. Adios! Adios!